Welcome to Deep End Theory. Hey guys, this is Julian Gray. This is Spencer Brown. Hi, this is John A. from Above and Beyond. And you're listening to Deep End Theory on, on UCLA, UCLA Radio. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. It's me, Valid, and I'll be hosting today's edition of Deep End Theory. And as for my partner in crime and co-host, Leslie Snipes, he's off on summer vacation, but do not worry, he will be back for the next episode. But in any case, we're very, very excited for this installment. And our guest, we find him to be very relatable as a person. And we've noticed him early on and have been following his steady and dominant climb since. His first name is Michael and he goes by the moniker of Enamor and produces in genres of house, more specifically the blend between progressive and deep house, but a bit of techno and tech house. And he's also released a lot of work on major progressive house labels like Injuna Deep, This Never Happened, Yoshitoshi, Mousetrap, and even Zero Three. Originally from Washington, D.C., where he first made a name for himself as a DJ at local clubs, and those experiences eventually led him to tour with Lane 8 as well. Now, for those excited, you can also catch him in LA this Friday, September 13th, where he'll be performing at Sound Nightclub alongside Dennis Horvat. And with that, Enamor, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. With all the accomplishments you've had so far up to today, can you take us back to the beginning of your journey when it comes to music? Yeah, so I, I've been musical my whole life. Um, my parents put me onto the piano when I was like six or seven or something and, and played for about a decade before switching to guitar. Um, I was never that into piano. It was kind of forced on me. And then when I switched to guitar and started being able to play the songs that I actually listened to, um, like indie rock and classic rock, um, I got a lot more interested in that. So I've always had this music theory background. It's not incredibly strong. I'm by no way, by no means like a genius at it or with perfect pitch or anything, but I, I understand it. And um, when I started listening to electronic music, um, I think it, it really started with mashups as far as like my creations. But once I realized that I could make the sounds in a, an electronic song the same way I could with like a guitar in a classic rock song that uh, sort of flipped the switch for me. And that's when I really became passionate about making music. Um, and I'm completely self-taught as far as electronic music goes. Um, it's just been years of reading, practicing, watching videos, that kind of thing. Okay. So with a decent foundation, you were able to feed the fire by consuming any knowledge you were able to get your hands on. One thing about your mashups, um, because they are a fun way to experiment, but a bit difficult to create something of high quality that just works. And so I know how hard it is, but was there a particular mashup that you're particularly proud of? Uh, not really. I, uh, I think I would be a little embarrassed if those resurfaced, uh, to be completely honest. Um, especially just cause like, I think the whole thing is so played out at this point. Um, but there was, I, I started in this program called like traction. I think it wasn't tractor. It was like something even more bizarre, but that was the mashup program that I used. And then I switched to reason for, I want to say six months before going to Ableton. And in that six months of reason, I made a couple 
IDM, like Flying Lotus kind of style songs that I think I'd be proud of. I can't, I don't know where I could find them. I think they're gone forever, but I remember playing them for some of my friends and they like couldn't believe that I had made them. So that was probably like the earliest I'd be proud of. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so mashups, that's one way you started dabbling in production. But what's the rest of the timeline and uh, rest of the series of events that eventually led you to start creating full-blown tracks? I would say that I started experimenting with the mashup thing and like music production probably when I was 18, 17 or 18, like the last year of high school. Um, going into college, it the interest switched to DJing a little bit because that was right when like dance music was really taking off like Afrojack and Avicii and all those guys were like blowing up. Uh, the DJing bug caught caught me first more strongly than the producing side of it. So I was DJing throughout all of college. Um, a lot of open format, sort of an attempt to bring that dance music side and the more electronic sounds to like a hip hop kind of crowd um, and top 40. So I was this open format DJ experimenting with production in my free time, but wasn't really that into it just because I wasn't that good at it. So it was harder to practice that when I also had to practice DJing. And that was actually, you know, like I had gigs and stuff to work for. So all throughout college, that was pretty much the case. Um, not to go too, too much down a rabbit hole, but I did join a duo where the other guy was the producer. I was the DJ. I try, I like gave him production advice or like advice or feedback rather, but I wasn't actually making the songs, but we toured in a couple cities through like a friend of his. And that kind of introduced me to the limelight, so to speak. Um, and that was, I think 2013. And after that, is when I sort of said, okay, maybe I should focus more on production because I've seen what's possible. Like I've flown to these cities and like played at these clubs. So I kind of got bit by the bug where it's like, if you don't produce, you're never going to really make a successful DJ career. You have to, you have to be both these days. So I'd say 2014 is when I started focusing more on production. But at that time I was graduating college. So I also was starting a new job. So I kind of had it on the side. It wasn't super focused on it for a year or two. And then I'd say by 2016, I said, okay, I don't want to do my day job for the rest of my life. I'm going to really focus on production. And I'd say that 2016 time was when I sort of went heads down for the next two or three years. And the Enamor project, I think, started like mid-2016, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's been a little it's been around three years since i like started the enamor project and really tried to focus and make it a real thing so really enamor was a project that had its genesis towards the beginning part of the decade and although you started releasing more tracks these last few years what would you say to those who kind of feel like you've flipped a switch and seen your growth in the last couple years only uh, would it be fair to say that your journey has been rather smooth and steady? Yeah, I think, I, th I mean, I'm extremely happy with how quickly it's happened. Um, at the same time, people do say that a lot. They're like, oh, wow, three years. That's really impressive. And I subscribe to the mentality that time is 
time should only really be measured in hours when you're talking about this kind of stuff. So when I meet people and they're like, oh, I've been producing for 10 years, like I'm so jealous. And I'm like, okay, well, how many hours per week do you produce? And they're like, oh, well, I don't produce every week. And like, sometimes if I get off work early, I'll do like two hours on like a Friday, but then I'm gone all weekend. And so it's like, okay, you've been doing two to five hours, let's say a week. So like a couple hundred in a year, but I was going like eight hours a day on the weekends and then like three to five hours a night during the week. So I think three years sounds like a short amount of time, but I think in hours it was a lot more time than you would think, if that makes sense. So I think it's 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 more about the the literal amount of time than like the 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 date range, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Basically, it comes down to the number of hours for sure, but just as important, if not more, is the consistency at which you work at. And you weren't putting in 20 hours one week where you, say, felt really inspired. And then once that feeling faded away, there's nothing being done for another two months. And I think that's the key is to put a considerable amount of time in but also have it reasonable where you can constantly have the same amount of work and progress being made week after week where you kind of start seeing a set routine. And you mentioned three to five hours a weekday, eight hours on a Saturday and another eight on a Sunday. So if I do my math right, that's about 30 to 40 hours. And then you combine that with a full-time job and <laughs> That puts you at a 70-hour week already. And so that's basically you working like a startup entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, I was there was a there was a long period of time where I was definitely working equal time at my day job and producing per week. And, and I like didn't really have a life outside of it. Um, I was lucky where a lot of my friends, firstly, they, they understood and they were willing to like accept that but also that they are really into the scene as well. So when we did hang out, we were like at a show or something, which is almost kind of working because you're getting inspiration. You're like seeing what the DJ is doing. So all of my free time was really devoted to music in, in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty smart. And so you controlled all the parts of your environment and even your friends were actually playing a part in reinforcing your goals when in a lot of cases, factors like that often cause conflict and you have to choose one over the other and make compromises. Also in a previous interview, you mentioned that you had specific goals to help you stay focused and stay on a path of progress. But where did you get this level of discipline and learn how to be so methodical with your time? Yeah, um, I think I've always been pretty self-disciplined. Um... I guess up until college, I was kind of a class clown and, and wasn't super self-disciplined. So I guess I could say since college, I've been that way. Um, but I I'm, I'm, think I'm unique in that way where I can like see people having fun and just be like, no, I'm not going to go do that. Um, so that's obviously helpful. <laughs> but um, as far as the goals are concerned, I think um, this, I think Tim Ferriss actually my, I don't think he like came up with this, but I think I picked this up from him where you have to have quick wins like pretty early on in your learning curve and in your journey to stay motivated. Um, so I think for me, it, it was setting very achievable goals 
and super long-term goals, but making sure that there was like enough in between where I was constantly reinforcing the idea. So like getting a record on Anjuna Deep was a long-term goal when I first started, but um, just creating a remix and sending it to the artist and having them respond positive or negative was a goal, like something that's very easy like that, or just playing one gig opening for like this random artist that I know comes to DC every year. So it's, it's things that are, it's setting goals that are, you know, are achievable and that are kind of quick wins and, and just keep you motivated, but then also, um, planning further out. Cause I think some people might say, oh, I want to get a record on Anjuna Deep. And then it's like, okay, that might take two or three years. What are you going to do before that? Like they might not even listen to your demos until they recognize your name because you were releasing on, you know, this other label. So I think it's, it's about being honest with yourself and reasonable. And then also bouncing it off of other people. Cause I, I oftentimes would talk to bigger acts and like got their opinions on certain labels. And sometimes they would tell me, oh, like that label takes six months to respond. They're probably never going to even see your email. So I, I didn't really pay attention to that goal anymore because I knew it was just going to frustrate me. Yeah. So having goals, but not being afraid to tweak them to keep them realistic seems to be the key. And also, I'm glad you mentioned the labels. So by taking a quick look at your discography on Spotify, you could see the number of different labels you've worked with. Some of them, the most renowned names in the industry. For those artists out there with tracks that they'd like to release, and they might be hesitant to just start publishing their work, how did you analyze and assess what labels would be good for a given track you wanted to release? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and say this and hopefully no one takes offense to it, um, but a, a much wiser, more experienced artist, I don't even remember at this point who it was, told me when I was first starting out to only release on labels that will change your career. And I kind of pressed him more and I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, why? And he explained it to me and he's just like, listen, if you, A, if you make a track and only, and like all the big labels reject it, like they listen to it and reject it, then maybe it's not even good enough to come out. Like maybe that's a sign. So you don't want to just send it to these brand new, like one man shops that have no promo, like no Spotify playlisting, no coverage, blah, 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 because they're probably not a good filter for quality to begin with. And um, I don't know if you've like covered this in other episodes, but I think it's a huge phenomenon where producers think their own stuff is so good. And then like six months later, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I showed anyone that. Um, so I, I think that, so first by being restrictive with labels, you're ensuring that your the quality of your work is passing like a an act like an important filter. Um, but also, and this sort of goes to self-releasing as well. I feel like if you're gonna put out a song, the whole point is to have as much success with it as possible, or have as many ears on it as possible. And for some people, it's like, yeah, I just want to have my name on Spotify, and that's and that's great. But if you really want to succeed and make a career out of it, you need to every release should be as successful as possible. I mean, it's just like by definition, that's how it makes sense to me at least. So if you're going to release on a small label, that track kind of gets wasted because it doesn't get the coverage that it deserves. Um, 
That being said, I don't think big and small are the right words for it. I think you have to, when I think about a label and how it could or could not change my career, it's what's their reach on these social media platforms? What's their connections for playlisting on different streaming sites? What's their promo list like? Is it managed by a random person or is it managed by a famous DJ? What are their touring things like? So there's dozens of factors that could go into the decision of whether I should release on this label or not. But at the end of the day, some tracks just aren't meant to come out. You like I have plenty of tracks that are completely finished. They crush it in the club, but a lot of labels have said no. And I I'm not going to self-release it and I'm just going to, you know, let it become like a, a club only track or maybe I'll give it a, as like a free download. But you don't want to subscribe to like the quantity over quality and then have a lot of the tracks just fall flat because the label wasn't able to support it. Cool. Yeah. And so it seems like it's sort of like a job interview where you want to find a label that'll generate the greatest results you can get out of the tracks you offer them, right? You've also been on plenty of different labels, but Lane 8's This Never Happened seems to have taken a liking to your work quite a bit. And so how did you get started with them and even eventually end up touring with the man himself, Lane 8? Yeah, um, it's been a great experience working with him. So I actually, uh, the way I met him was ambushing him pretty much after a set that he played in DC. So I had or I had played at the venue before, so I knew the guys who worked there. So I kind of just hid behind them and like chatted with them while he was packing up his stuff after the gig. And then I ran up to him, gave him like the whole elevator pitch, asked for his email sent him stuff back and forth for like six to nine months or something like that and he would give me really good feedback and and you know showed an interest in in a and ring my work to a certain extent and then when i finally sent him still life i think it was he really liked that and then everything sort of picked up from there i sent him another track that he really liked and then he asked if i wanted to remix his a song off the new album and I turned the remix around in like two or three days and he loved it so I think he kind of like the momentum built really quickly and then right after the remix he was like okay do you want to be on these four shows that are on the east coast um, and it just kind of continued from there so it was definitely being prepared like the whole preparation plus luck equals success or whatever it is I don't know if that's right but it, that, it was really a good example of that because I I went up to him, you know, it was very, like persevered in that way, but wasn't necessarily prepared with the right music. But, you know, six months of just sending him stuff over and over until he something hit. And then once I had the opportunity, I pushed it really quickly and, and hard to to make it count. Man, yeah, that's pretty awesome that you went out and just hustled your way to getting him to give you that opportunity. And so how is that mentality also helped you lead to getting you opening gigs for Eric Prids and Hot Sense 82. Yeah, I mean, in, in that regard, I think it's it, it's the same. It was the same promoter for a lot of those shows. So the first show I had with them, I made sure to like really knock it out of the park, and I had every single person I knew in the city made them come, um, so that there was like seventy people, you know, just for just for my set, and like showed the promoter that I I have this following. And then um, 
just really knocked the set out of the park so that people were talking about it for days and weeks after and like tagging me and and after you have that momentum you can start to ask for the gigs you want and and just build it from there right which makes sense and in terms of another act giving you quite a bit of support above and beyond through their ajuna deep platform one track in particular called ruby with it being the major release on Engine Deep and having the coverage it's gotten, tell us a little bit about how the track kind of manifested itself and how it was to see Jono Grant playing it in a set while he's rocking back and forth in a boat on the waters of Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I made that in July um, of 2018. Um, or maybe it was May. Yeah, it, it was sometime in like this early summer of 2018. And I had sent it to a couple of people on their team asking for feedback. And I think Jody really, really liked it. So he sort of brought the rest of the team in. And uh, yeah, and it just sort of took off right from there. I think before they even signed it, they said, you know, above and beyond really likes this. I think they might want to play it at their ABGBT 300 set. Um, so right then and there, I was this was like, I think August or something. I was like super pumped about it, um, but it didn't end up happening for, you know, months later. So this took a while for it to develop, um, but it looks like it peaked just in time to catch some attention from the right people for it to get a huge blast radius with the platform it got from ABGT 300. Yeah, totally. I think that release got as much mileage as it could have through uh, through that play, and then also just them using it as like the promo music for a bunch of their open air ads. And yeah, I was really happy with how that turned out. Cool. And yeah, for those listeners who are producers, you could check out the Ruby project file itself out on Sonic Academy, where Michael has a complete series explaining the construction of the track step by step. And I got a chance to look through it and I was pretty impressed by the thoroughness. But it also, the clarity was really, really amazing in which you presented the project, not only going into the how, but also the why you did certain things. And so how did you get into teaching and what led you to throw your project up on the internet? So I think I've always, not always, but since I started releasing on on some of the bigger labels and started getting questions from people, I was always reaching out on social media and, you know, answering whatever random questions people had. And I have a couple friends that are also producers, but a little bit behind me. So I was always mentoring them a little bit. Um, and I think that it really came about because when I started producing, there wasn't a lot of tutorials or uh, teachers doing the more deeper underground genres. It was like, if you wanted to learn how to make the Oliver Heldens bass, there's like a thousand YouTube videos. But if you wanted to do something that like, like a sound that like was in a Dixon song or something, you would, there's just no information for that. Um, and I kind of, promised myself that like if I got to a point where I confidently like knew what I was doing and knew how to do stuff that I would try to pass the knowledge back to people because I felt like there was a big gap um, that could be filled and it could just allow people to learn and improve so much faster so that if they are 
talented and if they do have really good ideas, they can get to the point where they can manifest those ideas uh, faster if I help them. And so you have a knack for teaching, but now I'm wondering how you've accumulated all this knowledge. And so what are some parts of your daily life that allow you to consume all this information on a regular basis? Like you mentioned Tim Ferriss, so I'm guessing you listen to podcasts and audiobooks. Yeah, so I guess my my podcast and my audiobook phase was heavily fueled by the fact that I had like a 30 to 45 minute commute there to my to my work and back. So now that I'm just working from home and and working only on music, I've that's suffered a little bit, which I'm a little sad about. Like I need to go on some road trips just to knock them out, but um I do always watch CNBC every morning <laughs> to to stay uh, attuned to what's happening in the business world because I, I, I do have like a stock picking side um, that's a little less active now that I'm focused on music, but it's it's still, the interest is still there. Nice. So you're into crypto when it was really popping. Uh, yeah. Also was a whole part of the crypto boom two years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say as far as like the daily information intake, it, I wouldn't necessarily say there's a ton of stuff going on. I do have a couple um, books about like creativity or music production or um, like specifically on synthesizers and sound design that I'll read every so often if I'm feeling uninspired. Um, I don't mean to interject, but are there any books out there that you would recommend in particular about creativity from an electronic music production standpoint? Um, about creativity in general, not necessarily. I feel like a lot of them have been, the ones I've read have been kind of fluffy, but there is a book called, it's an ebook actually called Making Sound that um, inspired me pretty early on to just start going wild with experimentation. It's just like a book of each page is like a different thing to try. And it's like, try putting a, reverb or try using an impulse reverb on an aux channel and putting your voice on the impulse so every time you send something to the reverb it's getting processed as if your voice was the room so just like the most like crazy thing that it's it's impossible to achieve in real life like we can only do it because we have computers but you send a clap to that reverb bus and now every time the clap hits you like hear your voice over it but in like a ghost kind of way so that's just like one thing from like the 100 page ebook and it's just stuff like that where you try something and it sparks an idea for the entire song um so i'd say as far as creativity concerned that that really uh was useful cool noting that down and we'll throw that in the show notes for later reference and uh in, in terms of your life outside of music what's your routine like or what are the other things that make michael happy um so i go to the gym i try to go to the gym every day that's i think that's really important for staying healthy and staying creative um i have a big breakfast i always drink coffee i think coffee is is magical for music production um like literally caffeine is extremely important to my success when it comes to making music um, but yeah, then I'll, uh, either go to the gym in the morning or afternoon, but I try to produce a little bit and then go to the gym and then come back. So it serves as like a break as well. Um, 
And then another thing I really enjoy doing that I also usually do every day is cooking. So um, I'll spend like an hour to two or three hours cooking dinner usually. And it's like a it's a time to break from music, but it's also a sort of meditation for me because I'm only focused on the cooking asp, like what I'm doing at that moment. So it's in a way my form of meditation because I'm not so good at the regular kind of meditation. Yeah, and I find that everyone has something that they like to do as a meditative measure for mental wellness, but it might not exactly involve sitting down and doing some actual meditation. Yeah, as long as you're you're clearing your mind somehow and like giving it time to rest, I think it's important. Yeah, and so now as we look towards the future for the rest of this year and the year 2020, what can fans all look forward to? So I have a couple tracks coming out um, for the rest of the year. Uh, I think like two or three or four maybe. And then a couple remixes. Um, I can't really say anything about any of them yet, but there's a couple really, really exciting big remixes coming up um, that I'm glad are finally coming out. And then I already have a couple EPs planned for uh 2020 as well so just similar frequent output can be expected i guess and then uh hoping to hit a lot of new cities on uh in the winter and spring as far as touring goes yeah that's awesome and sounds like your schedule is going to get even busier but in a great way and with all the additional touring that you're going to have to do, you've already thought ahead on how you plan on maintaining that marketing power with the constant work being released. And so you've also mentioned that you have stockpiled a lot of work and have been waiting for a right time to release it all. Yeah, definitely. I th- and I think that's a, a really big piece of advice that I give to people, especially like my close friends that are trying to do this, that if you like whenever you think you're ready whenever you have a song that like a big dj played or or you got really good feedback on and you think you're finally ready to like launch the pro like your project or whatever take six more months like just don't do it and take six more months because if you strike lightning the first time and you or sorry stress if you strike gold the first time and and it's a huge success and you can't follow it up with more tracks it's going to be for nothing because the whole attention span of of the scene just will pass over you so i didn't start really pushing everything into overdrive and like sending stuff to labels until i had 10 polished finished tracks ready to go and i think that's kind of stayed with me because i have this like pretty large output and it's just because i started with a, a, a you know a horde of like a dozen or so tracks and i've just continually refilled that as they come out and I think that's really important to, to not rush it and make sure you can really hit the ground running when you start. Yeah, that's actually really great advice. Um, and it shows how being careful with their release schedule can make all the difference with the impact you can make as an emerging producer. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's also sort of frustrating. And I, and I don't even know if this is because of the 10 tracks in general or because it's in general, but like, the average release time from finishing or like starting a track to having it released has been like anywhere from six to 18 months for me. So sometimes the track will come out and it's like, okay, I made that 18 months ago. It's like nothing like what I'm making right now. 
hopefully people still like it and it doesn't throw them off. And so far it's been fine. Um, but I just think it's a fun fact for people that don't realize it that like any time an artist releases a song, it's most likely not where they are artistically at that moment because it's the cycle has been so long. Yeah, and but nonetheless, that's something we're still going to be looking forward to quite a bit for sure. And Michael, I've learned so much from this chat and you've been so generous with your experience and all these tips. There is one last part of the show that we have yet to reach, which is actually a section you were very excited about from the very start, which is the rapid fire section. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fun. It's 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 fun to hear what I say on the spot because I don't even know what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess we're all going to find out together what what you have going on in your mind today. And so I'm going to set the clock for 30 seconds. And just like in any other rapid fire, well, you listen to Tim Ferriss. So yeah, just answer with the first thing that pops into your head. All right. And the clock starts now. What's your favorite track from childhood? Um, Photo Booth by Death Cab in middle school. <laughs> Spotify or Apple Music? Spotify. Favorite 90s track? Pony by Genuine. <laughs> Most dangerous thing you've ever done? Uh, I've been pretty safe, honestly. Prids, Prida, or Cyrus D? Prida. What's your favorite meal? <sighs> That's tough. I really like uh, like good smoked salmon eggs benedict in the morning. And favorite perk of the job? Uh, loving what I do every day. <laughs> and what did you want to be when you were growing up? Uh, like a CEO or of an entrepreneur of my own business, which I guess I technically am now, which is cool. Yeah, basically, right? Uh, what's on your bucket list? Uh, uh, to play on the moon. <laughs> and last one, dream B2B. Probably Patrice Boimel. Okay. One of my favorite DJs for sure. Awesome. Well, yeah, there you have it, folks. Enamor, with so much wisdom being dropped here today, we cannot thank you enough, man. And you can check him out on Spotify. He's very active on his socials with the handles Enamor Music basically on everything, SoundCloud, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And so he also has his show this Friday, September 13th, alongside Dennis Horvat at Sound. So be sure to check him out. And before we head into the guest mix, are there any parting words you'd like to leave the listeners? I guess for all the producers out there, just don't give up and work as hard as you can. I think those are the only two variables. I honestly don't think talent has as much to do with it as the effort you put in. Dope, yeah. And so now for the listeners out there, it's time to just sit back and relax and enjoy the sounds of an hour.
Thank you. 